This is Roger Johnson's entire lawsuit. Listener discretion is advised. It's difficult to listen to. Roger Johnson, a homosexual with no history of violence and very little prison experience, came into the custody of the Texas Department of Criminal Justice early January 2000. He was sent to diagnostic unit at Gurney and then to Huntsville for processing and classification. Mr. Johnson informed prison officials at both institutions that he was gay. Because his background and characteristics made him a likely target for sexual victimization, prison prison officials in Huntsville appropriately housed him in safekeeping. A state classification unit member assured him he would remain in safekeeping throughout his sentence. At All Red Unit, a unit classification committee, also known as UCC, consisting of three or more officials makes decisions on whether inmates require safekeeping at their prison. The Texas Department of Criminal Justice defines safekeeping in its Safe Prisons program as a status that permits the unit slash facility to house vulnerable individuals and other potential victims together separate from more aggressive offenders. Safekeeping status is reserved for those offenders who require separate housing in the general population because of substantiated threats to their safety due to a potential for victimization, i.e. enemies in the general population, a history of homosexual behavior, or other similar reasons. Mr. Johnson met and meets the criteria for placement in safekeeping status. Defendants have known for years of the pervasive and substantial risk of sexual assault at Allred. They were also aware that Mr. Johnson was vulnerable to sexual victimization. Nevertheless, they failed to take reasonable measures to prevent him from being victimized. In September 2000, when Mr. Johnson arrived at Allred, a unit classification committee that included Major and other officials promptly explained to Mr. Johnson that we don't protect punks on this farm. At the initial classification hearing at Allred, the defendants placed Mr. Johnson in the general population on 8th building. Predatory inmates then raped Mr. Johnson almost immediately. These inmates gave Mr. Johnson the name Coco, thereby designating him as an inmate available for sexual exploitation. The defendants also adopted the name addressing Mr. Johnson only as Coco and referring to him as she or her. Prison gang members and the general population soon asserted ownership of Mr. Johnson. The gangster disciple gang was first to officially own him. In early 2000, a gangster disciple named Andrew Hernandez forced Mr. Johnson into a cell and raped him. Afterwards, other gang members congratulated Hernandez for his conquest of Mr. Johnson. Mr. Johnson informed Sergeant Willingham and Assistant Warden Mooneyham that he had been raped and that he feared for his life. He asked for medical attention. They refused, stating that immediate medical care was available only in cases of emergency. On information and belief, Willingham and Moodyham did not even investigate the report at all. After Mr. Johnson reported the rape to them, he would continue to be raped and sexually abused every day until mid-November 2000. Hernandez also forced Mr. Johnson to clean his cell, make his bed, and cook his food. Hernandez told Mr. Johnson that if he did not submit, Hernandez would have killed him. 
In mid-November 2000, Hernandez began sharing Mr. Johnson with his friends and forcing Mr. Johnson to perform sex acts on them. During this time, gang members badly beat another sex slave they called Buttons for refusing to submit for sex. Hernandez made it clear to Mr. Johnson that the same would happen to him if he resisted his role as a sex slave. In December 2000, Hernandez stole Mr. Johnson's radio, fan, shoes, and $30 in commissary from his cell. Mr. Johnson reported this theft to Willingham, an officer lot, who laughed and insinuated that he should go get it back himself. When Mr. Johnson asked Hernandez to return the property, Hernandez assaulted him, bruising his face. Mr. Johnson was treated in the medical department and placed in segregation in the 11 building for nine days alongside his attacker. As a result of this attack, Willingham signed off on a life in danger claim requesting safe, safekeeping for Mr. Johnson. Mr. Johnson then appeared before the UCC committee to explain his needs for safekeeping. The UCC committee actually consisted of Mooneyham himself, Vitolo, and John Doe No. 1. Vitolo noted that the recent attack and pointed out that given Mr. Johnson's characteristics, he should have been placed in safekeeping a long time ago. Mooneyham replied that initial classification mistakes are not a, their problem right now. Ignoring the obvious risk of serious harm, the UCC and Mr. Mooneyham denied the request for safekeeping and sent Mr. Jim Johnson back to general population. <coughs> Excuse me, y'all. Before being moved back to Building 8 by the UCC, Mr. Johnson received a letter from Marty Smith, a member of the Bloods gang, indicating that Smith had bought Mr. Johnson from the GDs and would be, be waiting for Johnson to return to 8 Building. He now belonged to him. After nine days in Building 11, prison officials then returned Mr. Johnson back to 8 Building with Marty Smith. As soon as Mooneyham, Vitolo, and John Doe returned Mr. Johnson to 8 Building, Marty Smith began treating Mr. Johnson as a sex slave. At first, only Smith raped Mr. Johnson. Soon, however, Smith began forcibly selling Johnson to other inmates. In 2001, desperate for help, Mr. Johnson wrote the first of several letters to Defendant Wright, the Director of Classification, explaining that other inmates were sexually attacking and asking for safekeeping, please. Of course, Defendant Wright ignored the letters. In mid-January 2001, three inmates in the Crip Gang assaulted Mr. Johnson in the back stairwell of Building 8. They called him a renegade for not obeying their orders. Mr. Johnson reported the attack to Sergeant Matthews. Sergeant Matthews refused to report the attack and took no other steps to investigate the plank or protect Mr. Johnson from further injury. Mr. Johnson also sought help from the All-Red Unit Security Threat Group. The STG investigates gang problems on the unit. Mr. Johnson notified Sergeant Stiegel and Officer Canedo of the STG group about his problems with the gangs and the sexual attacks he was forced to endure. They took zero action. On February 1, 2001, Mr. Johnson again wrote right, requesting safekeeping, pleading for protection. He was ignored. 
Mr. Johnson appeared before the UCC again in mid-February 2001. They told him you need to get down there and fight or get you a man. That was their response that time. The UCC then denied Mr. Johnson safekeeping again, saying that they would move him from L-Pod to J-Pod in Building 8. Mr. Johnson begged them to reconsider because nearly moving him to a different housing pod in GP would provide no protection from the gangs. Defendant Bowman responded they would tie him up and drag him back to the cell if he refused to turn back, return back to Building 8. A few weeks later, Mr. Johnson again wrote Wright telling her about the four sex acts and requesting safekeeping yet again. At this time, member of the Bloods, the Crips, and the Mexican Mafia were all sexually assaulting Mr. Johnson. Another UCC was convened consisting of defendants Ward, Waithen, Vitello, and John Doe too. During this hearing, Waithen said that he did not believe Mr. Johnson because the Crips are a black gang and a black gang would not allow a Mexican to enslave a black American. He told Mr. Johnson you need to start fighting. Mr. Johnson asked if he was required to fight to save himself. Waithman replied, I don't care if you fight as long as you don't use a weapon. There's no reason why black punks can't fight and survive in GP if they don't want to F-U-C-K. They again denied him safekeeping. In late February 2001, Mr. Johnson went before the UCC again. They actually gave him a minimum custody status and moved him to building 8, I mean building 7. Gang activity was even more rampant in building 7. Inmates who were young, handicapped, homosexual, or perceived weak were quickly preyed upon by gang members. On information and belief, defendants were all aware of this situation. It was nothing new. Marty Smith, the blood who claimed ownership on him, who was transferred to Building 7 with him shortly afterwards, immediately reasserted his ownership, forcibly hiring him out to other gang members as a sex slave. A week later, he filed a Step 1 grievance, requesting safekeeping again. He received no reply. March 15th, Mr. Johnson received an anonymous letter from another inmate telling him that he would be dead once the unit was off lockdown because he was a snitch. One day later, he went before UCC with his fourth life endangerment hearing. The committee was composed of Waithen, Kuyava, and John Doe III. Waithen told Mr. Johnson that Mr. Johnson needed to fight his attackers again. Kuyava said, bring bruises or stay out of my face, man. On March 8th, he filed another Step 1 in grievance, describing a sexual assault and harassment. Nothing happened. April 17th, he filed a Step 2 grievance. Nothing happened. March 4th, Mr. Johnson received a reply back finally from the Step 2. Nothing happened. Throughout this period, Mr. Johnson was routinely forced to endure sexual assault and rape by multiple gang members. He began became increasingly hopeless and suicidal. At the end of July 2001, Mr. Johnson went before the UCC for another procedural reclassification. He was assigned a job as a unit supply clerk and moved to dormitory in Building 18. Gang member Marty Smith, taking advantage of lax security at Allred, 
frequently left his own building and came to Building 18 to harass, threaten, and assault Mr. Johnson. Late July, Mr. Johnson again reported the threats and assaults to Sergeant Matthews. Sergeant Matthews did file a life endangerment claim. August 2001, Mr. Johnson appeared before the UCC again on his fifth life endangerment claim. The UCC on this occasion was composed of Wathan, John Doe 4 and 5. Defendant Wathan told Johnson that Building 18 was entirely safe. On information and belief, they knew that was untrue. Again, they denied him safekeeping. Soon after Mr. Johnson was transferred to Building 18, the Tongo Blast Gang in Unit 18 targeted him for sexual victimization. A Tongo Blast Gang member named Eric Carboneau began threatening Mr. Johnson with violence unless he submitted to sex. The Crips and the Mandingo Warriors also began demanding sex from Mr. Johnson. Starting in 2000, August 2001 and continuing for five months to December 2001, the Tongo Blast Gang raped and prostituted Mr. Johnson. Only Tongo Blast Gang members were allowed to use Mr. Johnson's body during this time. During this period, Mr. Johnson fell into deep despair and hopelessness. He frequently considered suicide. December 1, 2001, the Tongo Gang ordered Mr. Johnson to perform oral sex on an inmate in 18R dorm. Sergeant Barnett found Mr. Johnson in this inmate's room and issued a disciplinary report against Mr. Johnson for being out of place. As a result, Mr. Johnson lost recreation and commissary for 45 days. On December 5, 2001, Mr. Johnson filed another step on a grievance requesting safekeeping and protection. On December 5th and December 30th and January 16th, desperate for help, he wrote letters to the senior warden pleading for protection. He received no letters, no response, nothing. December 13 that year, Mr. Johnson went before the UCC committee again for a sixth life endangerment hearing. Prior to the hearing, an inmate named Gilstrap, a member of the Mandingo Warriors gang, forced Mr. Johnson to put makeup on his face before he attended the hearing. The committee for this life endangerment claim consisted of defendants Bowman, Cuyava, Wrangell, and somebody else. When Mr. Johnson entered the hearing room, defendant Wrangell laughed derisively and told Mr. Johnson to remove the makeup. Bowman told Mr. Johnson, if you want to be a hoe, you'll get treated like a hoe. Go get you a man, preferably a black one, since it's the blood you're having a problem with lately. Puyava added, you ain't nothing but a dirty tramp. Learn to fight or accept the F-U-C-K. And Kuyava concluded the hearing by insisting that the record reflect that Mr. Johnson was wearing makeup. She then stated, Miss Petty's going to be a good place now. The defendants had Mr. Johnson transferred from Building 18 back to Building 7, the most heavily gang-infested building it all read that he had left already. Upon information and belief, defendants Bowman, Cuyava, and Rango knew about that severe problem and did it on purpose. During his first week back on Building 7, a member of the Crips gang forced Mr. Johnson to perform oral sex on him. The Tongos gang objected 
to this disrespect of their property and demanded $60 in commissary in payment from the Crips. Thereafter, members of the Mexican Mafia, the most powerful gang on Building 7, approached Mr. Johnson and told him that he must ride or die with them, meaning that only by accepting sexual slavery with one gang could he avoid being killed. The gangs began fighting over Mr. Johnson, and Mr. Johnson was told that he must attend a gang meeting in a recreation yard where he'd be forced to choose which gang he would own him. Mr. Johnson filed another step on the grievance requesting safekeeping. On the last day of 2001, Mr. Johnson intentionally incurred a major disciplinary violation in an effort to avoid the choice between death or continual sexual servitude. He went to the recreation yard when not allowed to do so and intentionally gave a wrong cell number. On January 9th, he had a hearing by Captain Hargrove. Mr. Johnson told Hargrove about being forced into sexual slavery at Allred and informed them that he had intentionally gotten a disciplinary case in order to protect himself. Hargrove laughed and told Johnson that he would strip him of everything. Hargrove proceeded to give Mr. Johnson the maximum allowable punishment. Mr. Johnson received restrictions on recreation, commissary, and property, as well as custody in a special cell restraint for 45 days. His classification dropped to a line three, which will require him to remain in prison for another two years past the date which he was able to be released. Mr. Johnson was also sentenced to 15 days in solitary confinement. This 15 days in punitive segregation was the first and only protection he ever received at Allred. On January 17, 2002, Johnson went before the UCC on his seventh life endangerment claim. The committee consisted then of Attilo, Norwood, and Taylor. After Johnson pleaded his case, Norwood told him that Johnson probably consented to the sex act. Personally, I believe you like Dick, he said. All the defendants laughed at the comment. Norwood told Mr. Johnson, you like this shit. I'm convinced you're in with this gang shit. I don't think you need no safekeeping need to be placed on high security. We don't have anything but one celly, then you can get effed all the time, all day. Taylor then said Mr. Johnson should be on medium custody. Learn to fuck or fight. Mr. Johnson then started sobbing uncontrollably, screaming and pleading with the defendants not to send them back to general population. They laughed. Two officers then grabbed Mr. Johnson and grabbed him, kicking and screaming for help. The next day, prison officials issued a written denial of Mr. Johnson's grievance due to insufficient evidence. Once prison officials released Mr. Johnson from solitary confinement and placed him on special cell restraint in Building 8, black and Hispanic gangs on the unit fought over him. Each claimed he was their property. Mr. Johnson received several threatening letters from inmate gang members addressing him as Coco. Some of the letters threatened physical and sexual violence. Others warned that he had been pegged as a snitch and that he might as well do as you're told. Desperate to get help before he was off cell restriction and back in general population, Mr. Johnson began writing to the ACLU and other organizations. His family also attempted to advocate on his behalf. 
in 2002, his grandmother sent a life endangerment claim to the TDC Ombudsman. On March 7th, the Ombudsman office replied that they had investigated the claim and found no support for it. This is Tim Snow's commentary here. Never trust the Ombudsman. They're trash. But anyway, on February 22nd, 2002, officials returned Mr. Johnson to general population in Building 8. That night, gang members assaulted Mr. Johnson and forced him to perform sex acts with other inmates. The attacks continued the next day. In despair, Mr. Johnson did not report either attack. February 24, 2002, the Mexican Mafia claimed definitive ownership over Mr. Johnson. The same day, the gang sold him to another inmate who forced him to perform oral sex. While the Mexican Mafia owned Mr. Johnson, the sexual assaults and exploitation escalated dramatically. The gang sold him to scores of other inmates. Gang leaders in Building 8 negotiated with gang leaders in Building 7 for a fee of $5 to $10 in commissary for his sexual services. Gang leaders controlled his life and his body. They told him to whom he had to be sold and what he must do for that inmate. They told him that he, if he refused, he'd be beaten or killed. As a sexual slave, he was repeatedly penetrated anally and forced to perform oral sex at the command of gang members. February 27, 2002, another Mexican gang bought Mr. Johnson's sexual service for a week. He was forced to perform sex acts on eight inmates in the stairwell, in the shower, and in his cell. March 10th, a white inmate called MJ came to Mr. Johnson's cell. MJ said the Mexican Mafia sent him and told Mr. Johnson, already paid them. I don't want to F you, just suck my dick. While MJ was demanding sex from Mr. Johnson, Sergeant Thomas discovered MJ in Mr. Johnson's cell and took MJ back to his assigned cell. Sergeant Thomas told MJ, I don't care how you make your money, but I'm not, to- I'm not tolerating prostitution on this car. And tell your pimp he better comply. Sergeant Thomas did not issue a disciplinary report against MJ. MJ came back later to finish up. On March 13th, on or around 12.30 a.m., an officer unlocked the door to Mr. Johnson's cell, allowing another inmate named J.D. to enter. J.D. told Mr. Johnson, some Mexican on 7 building sent me over. You know what it is. When Mr. Johnson balked at his request, J.D. told Mr. Johnson he had already paid for his services. J.D. forced Mr. Johnson to perform oral sex. On or about March 15th, the white gang leader masturbated on Mr. Johnson in the shower. The showers were completely unguarded and this type of humiliating assault become commonplace for Mr. Johnson. From the time Mr. Johnson was returned from cell restriction to general population on February 22, 2002, inmate gang members masturbated on him in the shower a minimum of 30 times. He could not take a shower without other inmates masturbating on him every time. On March 17, 2002, around 10.30 a.m., a Mexican Mafia inmate called Monster approached Mr. Johnson in the day room and told him that he must go to the showers. When Mr. Johnson arrived, eight or nine other inmates were in the showers. Gang members also forced a mentally ill inmate named Alizar to the showers. The gang members then surrounded Mr. Johnson and Alizar and repeatedly forced Alizar to stick his finger in Mr. Johnson's anus and lick it. 
Gang members then forced Alazar and Johnson to simultaneously masturbate each other in the shower while they watched. Despite the multitude of horrors he had already experienced at All Red, the surrealistic and nightmarish nature of this show stunned Mr. Johnson. The gang members tried to force him to perform oral and anal, anal sex with Mr. Alazar, but he refused. He was only spared this further degradation because of the other inmates relented when called to mill. However, gang members later, later pushed Mr. Johnson down the back stairwell as a punishment for refusing to comply to the orders. Immediately after the incident in the shower, Alazar, the mentally disturbed man, ran to the defendant, Lieutenant Paul, in the day room to beg for help. Alazar was hysterical, but defendant Paul refused to help him and ordered him to go away. Alazar then tackled the lieutenant and was hauled away on a disciplinary charge. When Mr. Johnson saw Paul after the meal, the lieutenant told him that he'd better not act like Alazar. He'd be carried off in a body bag. On March 23rd, Mr. Johnson returned from church to find a white inmate named Kevin already in his cell. Kevin told Mr. Johnson that he already paid for his services, and I'm not going to lose my money. Kevin then forced Mr. Johnson to perform oral sex on him. On March 7th, Bowman interrupted an attorney-client telephone call between Mr. Johnson and lawyers from the National Prison Project of the ACLU. Defendant Bowman ordered Mr. Johnson to get off the phone. Mr. Johnson was taken in into a meeting in Defendant Boyle's office. Defendant Boyle told Mr. Johnson there was no concrete evidence to support his life endangerment claim and that since he had not been stabbed or gutted, prison officials would not place him in safekeeping. Defendant Boyle then coerced Mr. Johnson into signing another form. He said, if you don't do it, we're really going to F you over. That same day, Mr. Johnson filed a grievance about the, thing, the whole incident. On March 28, 2002, the ACLU sent a letter to Defendant Johnson regarding Mr. Johnson's situation and requesting that he have Mr. Johnson placed immediately in safekeeping in order to prevent further irreparable injury. On March 29th, the next day after receiving a copy of the ACLU's letter to Defendant Johnson, Major Bowman called Mr. Johnson to a meeting and told him that the ACLU don't run shit in this prison and that Mr. Johnson deserved to have his ass kicked for this. And at the same meeting, Warden Treon said, the ACLU don't run my damn classification unit, sir. And Mr. Johnson better not say he was coerced into shit. Treon threatened Mr. Johnson with your classification. I can send you to a terrible place. On April 1st, Mr. Johnson again went before the UCC committee. During the hearing, defendant Waithen told Mr. Johnson, Right now, we're recommending to transfer you, and you're going to see a good friend of ours in another unit. Defendant Waithen then told Mr. Johnson that he would not be placed on safekeeping at this new unit because he, Waithen, was re recommending against it. Waithen, you're such a gentleman. April 5th, 2002, Gary Johnson notified the ACLU that due to his demeanor and or orientation, Mr. Johnson would be transferred from All Red and placed in safekeeping. On or about April 10th, 2002, more than 18 months after he first requested safekeeping and after repeatedly requesting such protection due to being sexually assaulted hundreds of times, 
Mr. Johnson was transferred to the Michael unit and placed in safekeeping. On April 10th, at Mr. Johnson's initial classification hearing at the Michaels unit, a UCC member, Major Fox, announced that an acquaintance of his at Allred had put a note in Mr. Johnson's file stating that Mr. Johnson is a manipulator who makes false claims. Mr. Fox indicated that based on this note, he considers Mr. Johnson to be a troublemaker and that if Mr. Johnson ever makes any trouble in Michael unit, he, Major Fox, will make sure that he's placed in closed custody, the worst place they have. Because of his past sexual enslavement by gangs and because gang members have branded him as a snitch, Mr. Johnson faces a substantial risk of further sexual assault, brutal beatings, and even death if he returned back to general population. Mr. Johnson remains in constant fear that prison officials will follow through with their threats to have him return back to general population in retaliation for petitioning for redress for his grievance. Because he was sexually assaulted hundreds of times at Allred without any means of protection, Mr. Johnson lives in constant dread that he may have HIV or hepatitis. Defendants have never offered him appropriate medical treatment, psychiatric care, or counseling. Defendants never ordered that any rape kits be taken or conducted any investigation when he complained. So that's his entire lawsuit and claims. TDC officials are gang members. Which ones are worse? Are they about the same? start realizing that TDC is a gang by itself. Make sure y'all subscribe.